You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, Be Set Free, a study of the book of Exodus. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Please open with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 13. On Sunday mornings, we are currently in a series uh, called Be Set Free, in which we're going through the study of Exodus. And the book of Exodus is the story of how God set his people, Israel, free from bondage and slavery in Egypt and led them into a wonderful freedom in following him. And in this book, what we have is is an amazing picture of how God wants to do the same thing in our lives as well, to lead us out of bondage and into freedom in him. We're going to begin this morning by reading our text, which comes from Exodus chapter 13, verses 17 through 22. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your presence. We see an amazing example of your presence in that text with the people of Israel, with your people, and we thank you, Lord, for your presence with us. We thank you, Lord, for the proof of your love for us and the proof of your presence with us, which is that you came and became one of us in the incarnation. You took on human flesh, and Jesus, you died for us. And we want to, Lord, be reminded today of the gospel, and we want to see in this picture of salvation that we have in Exodus, Lord, we desire to see insights and things that you would teach us about what it means for us to live as a free people now that you have set us free. So Lord, we ask that you'd speak to us this morning. We pray that you'd do that in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, uh, when I lived in Hungary, I remember I saw this news report, and a news station did a report called America, Land of the Free? Not really. And uh, it began with a newscaster sitting behind a desk in a studio And this is what the newscaster said. The newscaster said, you know, America is known as the land of the free. But how free is it really? We sent a reporter to the United States to find out. So they cut to this reporter. And the reporter, you know, is standing on the street with a microphone and says, we came here to the United States to find out just how free the so-called land of the free really is. And here's what we found out. If you want to get a dog as a pet, you've got to get a license. Freedom? I don't think so. Right? Let's imagine you want to work on your house. Anytime you want to work on your house, you have to go to this office, and you've got to get a permit, and you have to pay the government for that permit to work on your own house. Land of the free? Doesn't seem like it. Let's imagine you want to go fishing. Well, you can just go fishing wherever you want, right? Wrong. No, you cannot. If that lake is private, you can get arrested for trespassing. Where's the freedom there? And if you're lucky enough to find a public lake, you have to get a license to fish in it. If you want to make food and sell it on the street, nope, can't do that. You need a license for that too. 
So as you can see, despite America's reputation as the land of the free, clearly it is not. Now let me just uh, tell you real quick, this report was meant to be a satire, right? Like this was meant to be funny. It was meant to be a joke. But it does bring up a very good point. And the point is this, that freedom does not mean anarchy. Freedom is not opposed to rules even, per se. Uh, furthermore, once you become free, maintaining that freedom takes work. Freedom is something that has to be protected. Freedom is something which even has to be regulated in order to create a people and a society that is free, truly. Here in the book of Exodus, we have the story of how God set his people free from bondage to slavery in Egypt. And everything in Exodus up until this point has been about the plight of the people and how God was working on their behalf to set them free. But starting today, there's a major shift in the story. From chapter 12 on, about halfway through chapter 12 on to the end of the book, the people of Israel now are free. And now the focus of the book shifts from how will they get free to now what are they going to do next now that they are free. Egypt is now in the rearview mirror. They're leaving. They're free. And now they have to adjust to a new reality. They have a whole new set of circumstances to adjust to. How do they live as free people? And this very much applies to us because in the New Testament, it's interesting, at least two or three times specifically, explicitly, we are told that the Exodus story, although it's also a historical event, it is also a picture of the salvation that God offers us in Jesus Christ. The Israelites are a picture of us. Like them, we too have experienced bondage. Like them, we too have been set free. They by the blood of the Passover lamb, we by the lamb of God, Jesus Christ. But see, it's one thing to take the people out of slavery, but it's another thing to take the slavery out of the people. You see, it's another thing to take the slavery out of the people. That takes a lot longer. That takes some concerted effort. And so as we look at these people who are now set free and now learning how to live as free people, we're going to consider how these things apply to us as well. Here's what it says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. If God has set us free in Christ, what does it look like for us to live as free people? That's what we're going to be looking at today in our study. Our study is titled, A Cloud by Day and Fire by Night. And here's what we're going to see in this section, three main points. Number one, we're going to talk about, and this will be the majority of what we talk about, the rules for being free. Secondly, we're going to talk about an unexpected path. And thirdly, we're going to see encouragement for the journey. So the rules for being free and an unexpected path and encouragement for the journey. Now the word exodus means departure. In chapter 12, starting in verse 37, we see this mass departure of the people of Israel from Egypt. We saw last week how about 2 million people in total left Egypt, including a mixed multitude of Egyptians who joined them because these Egyptian people had come to trust in the Lord as a result of seeing what God did through the plagues. But right after they leave Egypt, here's what happens. Almost immediately after God sets them free, he starts telling them what to do. And you might say, what? How does that work, right? Immediately after he sets them free, he starts to give them rules. He says, every year you have to do this. 
And here's the kind of sacrifices that I require you to make. And here's what you can do and here's what you can't do. And after that, God starts telling them where to go. Go here, go there, turn left, turn right. And you know what they're gonna, um, where they're going to end up in the end, like where he's eventually leading them? He's leading them to a mountain where he's going to give them the law, right? Like the Ten Commandments and a whole bunch of other laws that are going to govern their life and their society and everything. In other words, God sets them free only to give them a bunch of rules. And you might wonder, well, what kind of freedom is that? Here's the thing. And this is the thing that the news report I mentioned earlier really was trying to point out in, in a satirical way. It was trying to point this out. Freedom is not the same thing as anarchy. Freedom doesn't mean no rules, no laws, no expectations. That's anarchy. And here's what's ironic about anarchy. Anarchy might give the illusion of freedom, but anarchy actually leads back into bondage. Let me give you some examples. It, it's, uh, if you've ever read the book, The Lord of the Flies, probably requ- re- required reading for a lot of us in school. Okay, The Lord of the Flies, what is it? It's the story of an airplane full of British schoolboys who crash land on an island in the Pacific Ocean. And at first, they're super excited because there's no one around to tell them what to do. And they feel like they're free. There's no rules Right? No more pencils, no more books, no more teachers' dirty looks. There's no parents around telling them when to go to bed and what to do and what not to do. They're free. But over time, the whole story is how everything deteriorates into chaos and to torture and to death. See, anarchy leads back into bondage. Here's another example. You know, we voted this last week, and one of the measures on the ballot here in Colorado was regarding uh, a line in our state constitution that says that in this state, There will never be slavery. See, now think about that. That's a law that restricts something. In other words, it takes away a freedom. The freedom to own another person. But yet, it protects the freedom of other people by ensuring that they will never be captured and held as a slave. Clearly, one of those freedoms is more important than the other. Freedom is always freedom from something and freedom to do something else. And so, freedom does not mean anarchy. Anarchy usually leads back into bondage. Freedom is something that has to be protected. It's something that has to be regulated. Freedom is not opposed to rules as long as those rules serve to protect and inform that freedom. Now, imagine what would have happened if God would have set the people of Israel free from Egypt and from slavery in Egypt. And as soon as they leave the border, you know, they pass the sign that says, you just left Egypt. That they were all just like, all right, guys, everybody, just go your own way. Do your own thing. You're on your own now. No direction, no instructions. You're free. Now, if that would have happened, what would have happened? They would not have experienced the freedom which God had destined them for. They would have ended up, what, recaptured probably by Egyptian troops or by some other nation who also would have enslaved them. Or they would have ended up eking out an existence in the wilderness. But they never would have experienced the promised land which God had in store for them. Salvation is about being set free from bondage. And bondage has layers. Here's the thing to understand. Bondage has layers. So even though now God has brought them out of the immediate bondage of physical slavery in Egypt, there are still layers of bondage in their hearts and in their minds that God wants to set them free from. And this is true for us as well, because again, the exodus is a picture of the salvation that God wants to bring into our lives through Jesus Christ. 
There are people who look at Christianity and their perception of it is, is that Christianity is incredibly constraining, incredibly restrictive. I remember a friend of mine who I grew up with, after I became a Christian, I was very excited about my faith and I would talk to him about it all the time. I invited him to church. I remember one time he just told me, I can never be a Christian because I like being free. Now here's the thing. The truth is that to become a Christian is not about giving up your freedom. To become a Christian is about giving up your autonomy. Say that again. Becoming a Christian is not about giving up your freedom. It's about giving up your autonomy so that you can find true freedom. That's exactly what we see here in this section and for the rest of this book. And here's, here's the thing. What my friend failed to realize <clears throat> is that he's not actually free. He's not as free as he thinks he is. Here's the reason. Because every person, no matter who they are, there is something that has mastery over them. It's, it's the thing that you live for, whatever that thing is. It's the thing that moves you and motivates you. It's the thing that shapes and directs your decisions and drives your life. It can be as simple as wanting to be liked by other people or, or wanting people to consider you a good person. It's the thing that drives you. You could put it this way. It's the work beneath your work. It's the thing that you're really trying to achieve and really trying to attain in everything that you do. Often it can be the desire for personal accomplishment in school or in business or with your family. It's the underlying thing that you are constantly pursuing in all of the things that you do. And think about this. If there is something that you must have, that you have to have in order to be okay, then you are not free. Your heart is chained to that thing. If you must have it, then you are a slave to that thing. Everyone has something in their life that has mastery over them. And it's only when God is at the center of your life, when his love is the ultimate source of your security, and his pleasure is the ultimate source of your significance, only then will you be truly free. The great message of the book of Exodus. Thank you very much. The great message of the book of Exodus is that this journey from this journey of liberation, this journey of coming out of bondage and into freedom, it will never be complete until you find your destination in absolute and utter devotion to God and God alone. I'll say that one more time. This journey of liberation will never be complete until it finds its destination in absolute and utter devotion to God. It's only in giving up your autonomy that you can experience true freedom. The reason, God, <clears throat> the reason God gave them these rules right after he set them free is because now that they are free, God wants to help them to live as free people. He wants to remove the other layers of bondage that are still in their hearts and their minds so that they can be truly free and not revert back into bondage. See, that's what all the laws, that's what all the commands are about. They're helping us to live as free people and to hold on to that freedom and not revert back into bondage. But the most important thing for us to see about these rules and laws that God gives us is this. Notice, when did God give them the law? When did he give them these rules? Did he give them the rules and the laws before they exited Egypt, before he brought them out of Egypt? Or did he give them after he brought them out of Egypt? Of course, the answer is he gave them after he brought them out of Egypt. In other words, it wasn't that God gave them the law 
and then waited to see if they would keep it, and then set them free because they obeyed it. No. His setting them free had nothing to do with their keeping any rules. He first brought them out, just simply because he wanted to, and then he gave them the law after that. And that, friends, that is the message of the gospel. The gospel is not, because I obey God, now I'm saved. But rather, the gospel is, because God saved me by his free grace, now I want to obey and follow him. It's a very important distinction. So now that God has set these people free, <coughs> sorry, from their immediate bondage, slavery in Egypt, now he sets out to create a people who are truly free from every layer of bondage that exists in their hearts. And that's the same thing that God wants to do in our lives as well. When you look at each of these rules that God gave them, they were all for the purpose of teaching them how to hold on to their freedom, as well as removing any layers of bondage that still existed in their hearts. So we're going to just now quickly look through these verses and consider how these different rules were meant to help them both hold on to their freedom and remove any layer of bondage that still existed in their hearts. As we do that, we're going to consider how these things speak to us as well. There are four things that I want to point out to you, four different rules, and we're going to consider how they applied to them and how they helped them in, to achieve this goal and then how they apply to us. These four rules are, number one, the congregation, number two, the meal, three, consecration, and four, sacrifice. So let's begin with the congregation. In chapter 12, we're going back a little bit, but chapter 12, verse 43, here's what's happening. God is instituting the Passover as an annual feast, something that they have to do every year. And the first rule that God gives them is this, no foreigner may partake in the Passover. And if someone wants to partake in the Passover, they have to join themselves to the congregation of Israel. You have to become part of the community that has entered into covenant with God. In other words, in order to be free, you had to give up your autonomy, which meant you couldn't be a lone ranger. You had to become part of the congregation. You know, for many reasons, and I'm sure there are many reasons, I'm sure some of them are, you know, very understandable, but there are thousands of people, even in our own community, who are Christians, but they don't, they're not connected to a congregation. They're not connected to a community of believers. And simply put, I'll just tell you frankly, that's not healthy. That's not good for those people. And even more than that, it's really not good for their kids if they have kids. Being connected to a community of believers, a congregation where people know you and you know them, where you're gathering together to lift up the, the name of the Lord and you encourage each other and spur each other on in your faith, that is one of the strongest mechanisms that God uses in our lives to keep us on the path of freedom and keep us from reverting back into bondage. It's one of the reasons why we encourage everyone to join community groups here at our church. Especially as our church grows, it's going to be all the more important to foster those kinds of relationships. Where you know people and you are known by them. People who can spur you on in your faith. And maybe God would put it on your heart, you know, in, in light of this. That to reach out to somebody you know who's a Christian but who's not connected to a congregation of believers. You know, we're getting ready for our... Christmas Eve services this year, we're going to have two services on Christmas Eve, and we were just preparing for it in our staff meeting, and we ran across some statistics, some interesting ones for you. In the United States, on average, about 20% of the population regularly attends church. Now, that's a national average, so my guess is that here in Colorado, it's probably a little bit less. 
But 63% of people said that they want to attend church around Christmas time. So that means that you've got 43% of people who, will, who want to go to church somewhere. They're just waiting for somebody to invite them to a good church. But here's the really shocking statistic. This blew me away. This was the statistic we read. 91, 91, more than 9 out of 10 people, 91% of people said that they would be open to going to church any time of year if someone would invite them. That blew me away. That's a huge statistic. And here's the point. One of the first rules for being free is no foreigners. No foreigners. In other words, don't be a stranger. You've got to become part of the congregation, part of the community of people who've entered into covenant with God and who are pursuing God. It's vital for you if you are to stay free and not end up back in bondage. The next thing is the meal. Another rule that God gave them there in chapter 12 about the Passover. He said this, if you're part of the congregation of Israel, you have to take the Passover. It wasn't optional. You had to take the Passover. You could not be part of this community and not take the Passover. Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he ate the Passover meal with his disciples. It was his last supper with them before he was crucified. He took the bread and he broke it. He took the cup and he passed it. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. This is my blood which is shed for you. Do this often in remembrance of me. And just as here, God instituted the Passover meal. Why? So the people would have a tangible reminder of what God did for them in setting them free. In the same way, Jesus gives us a new variation of this meal to be a tangible reminder of what he did for us on the cross in order to set us free. You know, here at Whitefields, we take communion, we take the Lord's Supper every Sunday. And the reason we do that, the reason it's so important to us, is because we need this tangible reminder. It's so important to us that we remind ourselves tangibly each week that because his body was broken for us, our sins are forgiven. Because his blood was shed for us, we can be made clean. We can have new life. We can have relationship with God. And by taking those elements into our bodies, it's a very significant way of declaring, I receive this. I receive what he did for me. When you keep what Jesus did for you constantly before your eyes, constantly in the forefront of your mind, here are two things that it does for you. Number one, it makes you incredibly humble. And number two, it makes you incredibly confident. When you keep the sacrifice of Jesus before your eyes constantly, it makes you incredibly humble and incredibly confident. It makes you incredibly humble because you realize that you have fallen short. You acknowledge that you have sinned and that you have no right to look down on anybody else or think too much of yourself. Because you are so broken that God himself had to die for you. But it makes you incredibly confident. Because the message of the gospel is not only that God himself had to die for you, but that God himself was glad to die for you. And knowing that he loves you, knowing that he cares for you that much, makes you incredibly confident and incredibly bold. So the purpose of the meal is to live as free people. To not go back into bondage. It's to help us by re reminding us regularly in a tangible way of what he did for us. Thirdly, consecration. In chapter 13, the first 10 verses, God calls the people to observe uh, a feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And this was a week-long ceremony that lasted after the Passover where they would get rid of all the leaven 
It's like yeast from their house, and they would clean their house. They'd get rid of all the leaven for a week. They would only eat unleavened bread, remembering how when they had come out of Egypt, they had not had leaven, and they had had to eat unleavened bread during the Exodus. But here's what's interesting. Throughout the Bible, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, leaven is used as a metaphor for sin and evil. And the reason is because leaven, right, being a, a kind of yeast, is a, is a kind of bacteria that is a living organism. It has a way of multiplying and growing and spreading, kind of like a cancer. And the idea is that sin works in a very similar way. And so there's some very important symbolism here with getting all of the leaven out of your house, with periodically doing an assessment, periodically cleaning house, taking inventory, looking around in the dark corners, lifting up the rug, getting rid of all the leaven. I don't know who keeps leaven under the rug, but you get the metaphor there. Now for us as people who have been set free, in order to live as free people and not slip back into bondage, it's important that we periodically take inventory, that we clean house, that we assess, is there anything in my life that's like leaven? Is there anything in my life that's a form of sin? Maybe it's an attitude that I've developed towards another person. Maybe it's a habit or addiction that I've let back into my life. Maybe it's a relationship, maybe a relationship with a coworker or a neighbor that's bordering on inappropriate. If you ignore these things, they don't go away. They're like leaven. Leaven doesn't stay in one spot. It grows. Molds and bacterias, you know how they grow the fastest? In the dark, right? That's how sin is as well. Keep it in the dark. It's not going to stay how it is. It's going to grow. The purpose of the consecration was to say, Lord, I belong to you and I want to walk in freedom. And so I will bring the deeds of darkness into the light. I will get rid of anything in my life that could result in me ending up back in bondage again. Fourthly, there's sacrifice. From, in chapter 13, from verses 11 to 16, we read something really interesting. Here's, here's the rule, the next rule. In remembrance of the Passover, every firstborn of both man and beast had to be sacrificed as an offering to God. And maybe you say, what? That's pretty weird, right? Like human sacrifice? That's not okay. And you're right, it's not okay. Human sacrifice was forbidden. Furthermore, some animals were not allowed to be sacrificed because they were unclean animals. The example is actually given in our text of a donkey. They're saying, hey, donkeys are unclean. Don't go sacrifice any donkeys to God. And so what you had to do with humans, because you can't sacrifice humans, what you had to do with unclean animals is, says, very curious wording, right? They had to be redeemed. They had to be redeemed. And this is what's interesting. Unclean animals could be redeemed by substituting and sacrificing in their place a clean animal. The example in our text is literally given. If you have a donkey, donkeys are unclean, but you can substitute a pure and spotless lamb and sacrifice the lamb, and the donkey's life will be spared. In the case of firstborn humans, there was to be a redemption. The redemption was actually a sacrifice of money. It was monetary. Now, personally, I love the story of the donkey because it's a picture of the gospel. I don't know about you, but that's me, right? That's me. I'm the donkey. I'm pretty stubborn, and I'm not that cute. But the bigger issue is I'm unclean, and that's the real problem. I'm under a sentence of death, but God has made a way 
For me to be redeemed, for my life to be redeemed, for me to live, a lamb will be substituted for me. Jesus Christ, the lamb of God who took my place in death so that I could live. But here's the bigger picture with these sacrifices. All of Israel belonged to God. That was a given. But the firstborn were to be specifically dedicated. And of course, there's this symbolic gesture of redeeming their lives back with money, which was not at all symbolic. That was actual money. Now, in the same way, all of their income belonged to God, but they were instructed to give 10% of that income back to God as a tithe. In the same way, all of their harvest, all their crops belonged to God, but yet they were to give the first fruits of their harvest as an offering to God. Now, why was that? Wasn't it enough for God to know that they know that everything they have is his? I mean, can't they just say, yep, we got it, God. Everything we have is actually ours. We're just, you know, we're stewards of the stuff you've given us, and we're good. So why did God want them to physically give some of it back to him? I've heard it put this way, and I, I think it's, it's actually really insightful and really true. And I know I've experienced it in my life as well. And here's, here's the saying. Collecting offerings is not God's way of raising money. It's God's way of raising kids. Those kids are us, by the way. And God is our father. And as a father, God asks us to give sacrificially, to give tithes, offerings, not primarily because he needs to raise money, but because he wants to raise us. That's the first reason, because it's good for us. But here's what, here's what happens. Whenever you give something, especially something you care about, especially something you've worked for, when you give something that's meaningful to you, you know what you do? you release a little bit of the grip that that thing has on you. You take its claws out of you. Giving to others, giving to God, it helps to set us free from selfishness, which is another, it's one of those layers of bondage, right? Jesus told us, wherever your treasure is, your heart will be also. He told us to store up treasure in heaven. In other words, here's what's, here's what's unique about that. He says, you can actually di direct, direct the affections of your heart by where you put your material resources. If you direct your material resources to God and his work or to other people, God's kingdom, things like that, if you direct your material resources, your thoughts and affections will follow. And so God tells us, I want you to give back to me some of what I've given to you. I want you to give back to me for worship and for my work. And I want you to be generous to other people with what I've given you. Because every time you give part of what I've given you away, you are releasing its grip on you. And you are, you are directing the affections of your heart. So bondage has layers. And God gives us these rules and instructions to help us be truly free in every way. These last two points are going to be quicker. First of all, we see an unexpected path. Now in our text, the text that we read at the beginning, we started in verse 17. And we read this, that when God led them out of Egypt, he did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines. Which is, by the way, where they're trying to go, right? So God didn't take them to the place that they were eventually really trying to go, even though that was near. God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war... And returned to Egypt. But God led the people around by way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. Now this was fascinating because what this means, <clears throat> and, and historically it's very accurate. What it means is that there was a good, clean, efficient, safe road that went straight out of Egypt to the land of Canaan. 
the promised land. That's where they're trying to get to. This road was called the Via Maris, which means the way of the sea. And it went right along the coast of the Mediterranean. Along that road, because this was a major trade route, there would have been traders selling water, selling food, which are pretty nice to have when you've got two million people, including women, elderly people, and children. It's nice to have some food and water that you can buy if you need some along the way. Now, some people estimate that using the Via Maris, even with two million people, it would have taken about four to ten days to get from Egypt to Canaan. Do you know how long it ended up taking them? Now, uh, well, it took them one year. Now, in the end, it's going to take them 40 years, but that's a different story. We'll talk about that another time. It's going to take them one year to get from Egypt to the border of the promised land. One year. They could have been there in like six days. So why didn't God take them on the fast road? You'd think if you're leading two million people, you got women, you got elderly people, you got children, you probably want to take the nice road where you can buy water and snacks along the way, right? Where you can use the bathroom, where you'd be relatively safe from thieves and robbers. <clears throat> but that's not the way God led them to go. Instead, God leads them a different way, out into the wilderness, the middle of nowhere, where there are no roads, there's definitely no stores. But it tells us that God did this. Why? Because he knew that on that road, the Via Maris, there were dangers that they didn't know about. It tells us here that there were Egyptian military outposts along the way. God knew that his people weren't yet ready to fight that battle. And so rather than lead them on the nice, easy, safe road, God led them out into the wilderness, to the east, and then later to the south. We're going to talk more next week about the exact route that they took, actually. But consider what a dramatic thing this was for God to do. The people of Israel would have felt like the Via Maris, this nice, clean, efficient, safe road, that would be the way to go. That's what would make sense to them. Come on, God, why wouldn't you take us on that road? It's obvious that's the way to go. And here's why. Because they didn't know. They couldn't see the dangers that awaited them on that road. But God did. God could. I wonder how many of us, I wonder how, well, let's say this first. I wonder how many of the people of Israel said, why, God? Why are you doing this to us? Why can't we take the easy road just like everybody else and go along the sea? Why do we got to take the hard road, the difficult road through the wilderness? There was a reason, and it was a good and loving reason. In the wilderness, you know what would happen to them? Not only are they going to go on this one-year journey for a road that would have only really taken them a couple days, but as they go on this journey, God is going to do some amazing things. He's going to reveal himself in some incredible ways. We see the first of them in the next verses. But these are things that never would have happened if they would have stayed on the safe and easy road. Now apply this to your life. I wonder, there's some of you here today who wonder, you're wondering why has God led me along this certain path in my life? It's a path that I wouldn't have chosen for myself. Maybe it's a difficult path. Can you appreciate that there may have been untold dangers along the other way that you would have chosen for yourself. And that the reason why God directed you the way that he directed you was actually for your good because he loves you. Can you appreciate that maybe the road that leads through the wilderness might actually be the best road for you to be on? Because on that wide and easy road, you might have actually fallen back into bondage. The same bondage the Lord set you free from. 
Can you appreciate that maybe on this difficult road, God may reveal himself to you and show his presence with you in unique ways that you would have never experienced on the easy and safe way? Let's conclude with this, the encouragement for the journey. At the end of chapter 13, we read that the people came and they camped at Etham. <clears throat> the word Etham, interestingly, means with them, with them. And it was here in Etham that God showed his presence in a dramatic way by giving them a constant assurance that he was indeed with them. A cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. A pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, they served two purposes. Number one, they were God's way of leading them. You know, a lot of us can't even get to a coffee shop without a GPS, right? These people, they've been locked in Egypt for 430 years. How are they going to, they don't know how to get anywhere, right? How are they going to get where they need to go? They don't even know the way. Well, here's how God's going to lead them. All they've got to do is keep their eyes on him. They've just got to follow him, let him tell them where to go. And you know, there's some people who might have said, man, God is so bossy, right? He's always telling me where to go and what to do and all that. Yeah, and good thing he is. You know why? Because you'd be lost without him. If you'd end up back in bondage, you'd end up starving in the desert. And the same is true of us. God, as a loving father, he knows the way we should go. And he's going to lead us to get there if we follow him. Secondly, not only was it a way to show them where to go, but secondly, the other uh, purpose it served, it says that, especially later on in Psalm 105, it tells us specifically, it says that God used that cloud to shade them from the desert sun and he used that pillar of fire at night not only so they could walk at night but to warm them because if you've ever been in the desert you know it's hot during the day and it's super cold at night this cloud by day and fire by night they were a constant reminder of God's presence with them they were God they were a symbol of God's mercy towards them on this journey they were an encouragement and maybe you think man if only God would do something like that in my life then I would follow him too no problem right if only God would give me something like that, some undeniable proof that he loves me, some undeniable proof of his presence in my life, something that could set me right, something I could never do for myself, something that would show me unequivocally that he is present and that he cares for me in a way that I could never deny it. Friends, I'm here to tell you today that he has. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God says it in plain language. By this we know that God loves us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Again, in 1 John 4, 9, it says, this is how God showed his love to us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. I want to invite you today to look to Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one who died in your place, he took your place in death that, you might, that he might redeem your life both now and for eternity. The ultimate and undeniable proof of God's love for you. He did everything to set you free. Will you now walk in that freedom and follow him? We stand with me in this prayer. Lord, we thank you for this freedom that you've given us. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to walk in this freedom, to live in it. Lord, thank you for directing us and guiding us. Thank you for your mercy in our lives, this undeniable proof of your care and love for us. Lord, may we see that. May we see the cross, an even greater sign of your love and care for us than even a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire. Lord, may it be ever before our eyes 
making us humble in the ways that we need to be humble and confident and bold in those ways that we need to be confident and bold. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us. We pray you'd solidify it in our hearts. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, Be Set Free, a study of the book of Exodus. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.